Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. Our cases this week, a body of a young woman who was abducted outside of Reno while on her way to work early in the morning has been found. She was kidnapped from a Walmart parking lot. Her family now claims that the slow and non-urgent response from the local sheriff's office could have been the difference between finding her alive and finding her dead. And a double homicide staged to look like a murder-suicide. A Virginia woman has been found guilty of killing her mother and her sister, all because of a financial dispute and jealousy. Nearly five years after the crime was committed, the truth about what really happened has come to light. Hi, everyone. I'm Anna Garcia, your host. We're recording this on Wednesday, April 6, 2022. And our guest today is Joey Jackson, a criminal defense attorney from New York. You recognize him because he's a legal analyst for CNN and HLN. Joey, welcome back. Anna, it's good to be with you. You do phenomenal work, and I'm glad to be with you. And I I think you shed light on all these stories. You help the crime victims, and I think you just help humanity in general. I'm a big fan, and thanks for the invitation to join you. Oh, Joey, I needed that little bit of sunshine today. Thank you. Look at you. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, let's get to these cases. The first one we're going to talk about is about this mother and daughter, an adult daughter. They were found dead in their home in Virginia. And at first, it looked like a murder, suicide, meaning that the daughter killed the mother and then put the gun on herself. And you know, they kind of publicly said, Joey, in the beginning, they didn't dispute that storyline. The police didn't. But secretly, privately, they suspected the other sister the whole time. And Joey, it ends up being she's now been convicted that the other sister was jealous of the sister who she set up and that mom always liked her better. And that mom was helping her to get a house and not helping her. And it's just horrible to think that family member turns on family member. Yeah, you know, it's really crazy. And what motivates people, whether it's greed and just avarice and just the the lust for the things that they want that they can't get, right, that they have to step over people for doing. So in looking at this story, and I've learned a long time ago by being a prosecutor and now a defense attorney, is that things are not always as they initially appear to be. And when you look at this case, and we always talk about when we talk about crimes, right, to get a little wonky on the legal side. So such and such is not an element of a crime. You don't have to establish motive. But right. What is an element of a crime? Things you have to prove. Right. If you're showing murder, you just have to show the intention to commit the murder. You don't have to explain to the jury why. But, you know, and I know that inquiring minds always want to know. And I think sometimes the motive can even be more uh, powerful than demonstrating, right, the actual element of the crime itself. And when you look at this, and I think you laid it out beautifully, uh, although I should say sadly, because as you noted, you have a family member, a daughter, no less, killing her mother and her sister. Why? The motivation of greed. You know, I think, mom, that you like this daughter, my sister, more. I think that you shouldn't pay for her house, but you should pay for my house. I think that, you know, it goes on and on. And as a result of that greed, it reared its ugly head. She tried to conceal it, but police are smart. They know about crime scenes. They know about the trajectory of weapons. 
And sometimes when you have a mother dead shot to the head, you know, the daughter dead shot to the head, 22 caliber rifle, hmm, could this be the case? And then they go digging, digging, and the proof and the devil is always in the details. And so thankfully and fortunately, they were able, that is the police, investigators, prosecutors, were able to bring her to justice by demonstrating that, you know what? Your motivation led you to commit this crime. You're guilty and you should spend the rest of your life in jail. You always say, I I listen to you a lot, and you always say that crime is often very logical, that the answers are generally there. And, you know, sometimes we're looking for deeper, complicated. It's kind of like life. Usually the answer is pretty straightforward, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because who tries to complicate things are the actual criminal minds. And I've always said to Anna that if people spent the same amount of time thinking about doing things rationally, logically, legally, building a business, building a following, building a structure, building wealth, right? Building your internal integrity, building your performance, building your talent as much as they do, how am I gonna get away with this? How do I commit the perfect crime? How do I misguide and missteer the police into thinking one thing over another? And so if you just put your mind to something favorable, maybe we can uplift society as opposed to having these criminal elements in society. And so while this particular criminal, the sister, Megan, I believe, attempted to make this complex, attempted to throw the police off, I think the evidence really spoke for itself. And, you know, at the end of the day, and you know this, Anna, I know this, you could say anything you want, but what does the evidence show? What does the motivation show? What do the things surrounding you, right, that ultimately build a crime scene show? And when your boyfriend, right, remember one of the, the daughter's boyfriend thought something was not too kosher because he was getting text messages that did not seem as though they were from his girlfriend, right? right. We know how we relate to each other. If I'm texting you on every day, You know what I say. You know the emojis I send. You know the general mindset that I'm in. You know what I'm saying? You know Mm -hmm. the the happiness or lack thereof that I bring. We all know each other. And so the daughter, in a further effort to conceal herself, was trying to throw even the boyfriend off of, right, his girlfriend was killed, her sister. And so ultimately he said, you know what, officers, this doesn't make sense. In addition to a phone call he received just beforehand from his sister, who was freaking out, saying, I need to save my niece who's in the house, but I need to get out of the house because Megan's going nuts. He killed my mom. So, yes, it was straightforward. She tried to complicate it. The defendant, now convicted murderer in this case, but police are too smart, brought her to justice, and she'll be uh, in the pokey for some time to come. Indeed, she will. Police say that 39-year-old Megan Hargan killed her 63-year-old mother because, of course, mom likes sister better. And so, Megan Killed her sister, (laughs) right? Let's just get rid of the problem right there. Here's the scene, July 14th, 2017. The bodies of 23-year-old Helen Hargan and her mother, 63-year-old Pamela Hargan, are found shot to death in their home in McLean, Virginia. Also living in the house, but not dead, Megan and Megan's eight-year-old daughter, who you referenced, was in the house when all this happened, even though Megan denied initially to police that she was. The scene was set up to look like the daughter Helen, the favorite, had turned on her mother, killed her mother because of an argument, and then turned the gun on herself. So Helen was found in the bedroom, along with the murder weapon. Mom was reportedly located in the laundry room with the shell casings nearby. The medical examiner determined that it was a 22 caliber weapon to the head that killed both women. But here's what's interesting. Initially, the medical examiner said, you know, for sure mom is a murder, but we're just not sure that the ballistics are showing that Helen killed herself. So, There were red flags the entire time. The lone survivor being Megan. She, of course, starts telling police all sorts of stories. She said, you know what? My sister, Helen, she started to act kind of weird. I noticed changes in her. So she's she's starting to spin that narrative for police that it was all Helen. Obviously, it was Helen. So here's the other thing. There was this huge dispute over a home. Mom was helping Helen, we'll call her the deceased sister, to buy a new home. And apparently Megan, the jealous sister, didn't like that. 
she wanted to know why she wasn't getting a house or for whatever reason she felt she deserved whatever resources and attention mom was giving to Helen. So th those are the seeds, the seeds of what's going on and what's festering in the house. Now, as I said privately, cops really suspected the surviving sister here. And you mentioned this phone call. So Helen's boyfriend, Carlos, Carlos Gutierrez, said he received a really disturbing phone call from Helen from the house. She said that Megan had gone berserk, had shot her mother. She could hear her mother struggling for life. And he says to her, get out of the house. And she says, no, I'm afraid because of my niece. She's eight years old. I can't leave her. He says, let's call 911. She says, don't call 911. He ultimately does. What do you do in a situation like that, Joey? Yeah, you know, first of all, Anna, I think that you explained it so beautifully. And I think that what happens is you, right, like prosecutors are storytellers. And when you hear a story being told like that, it resonates, not in a good way. Because ultimately it makes sense because, as you point out, all of the different factual components of this, the motivation as to why it could have been committed, the strangeness and weirdness surrounding it. And you add all of the compelling story that you just told to other facts that were able to be determined, such as Megan, the defendant, now convicted murderer, who the day before was trying to do fraudulent wire transfers with her mother's account, by the way. Right. And it just all leads to one conclusion. And it leads to the conclusion that Megan was guilty. And that's what a jury saw as to the two counts. And to your question, when you get a phone call like that, do you not think that the police were going to interview everyone involved, right? Officers do a lot of things in their investigation. Obviously, there's an evaluation of the crime scene, as we know, in order to determine how it looks, what could have happened, where the bodies are located, whether or not the ballistics conform to what you're told, you know, or believe a murder-suicide. But wait, how can it be a murder-suicide if the trajectory of the bullet doesn't make sense in terms of how the person shot themselves. And so they knew Helen, the decedent, the sister of Megan, right, uh, couldn't have done this. And so they eventually parsed it out. And who does it lead them to? Carlos, who you noted, Anna, as to being the boyfriend of Helen. They, they look upon this disturbing phone call talking about how Megan is going, as you noted, ballistic in the home, and things just don't match up. And so oftentimes you put the pieces of the puzzle together and things have to look <laughs> one certain way when they don't, you get suspicious. They got suspicious. She was prosecuted. And herein lies the issue where she ultimately, having heard the jury, having heard all the evidence, the compelling story that you just told, said guilty and guilty. Goodbye. Carlos did testify in the case, and he said that he lost contact with Helen. And when he called back, Helen wasn't answering. So now he's getting very, very worried. He keeps calling. He keeps calling. Megan picks up the phone. This is what he testifies to and says that she said, oh, you know what? Helen and my mother were in the middle of a huge ar argument. And I'm sorry, Helen can't come to the phone. <laughs> that, of course not, because Helen is dead. She cannot come to the phone, right? So then Megan's thinking, hmm, yeah, so Carlos is probably a little suspicious. I need to clean up this, this loose end, if you will. So she texts, as you said, and she used, I guess, terms or phrases that just didn't sound right. The texts that were sent from the phone, and I always say this, came from the phone. We don't know who really wrote the texts. And here's some experts, uh, excerpts. Everything is fine. And then this is the best one. I'm not mad at Megan. So that's supposed to be coming from the dead sister saying, oh, yeah, I'm not mad at my sister. Of course not. <laughs> of <It's> course not. <laughs> So crazy. I mean, that's what you call on a covering your tracks or at least making the effort to cover your tracks. But again, as I noted, if you don't know how people relate to each other, sometimes things are very strange because, right, I mean, you have a flow and you know who texts you, you know what they sound like, you know what they say, etc. And I think the boyfriend said, hmm, this really doesn't sound like the Helen that I know and therefore matching that against the phone call that he received from Helen when she was still alive with respect to Megan, now the convicted defendant, who, you know, was going ballistic in the house and ultimately killed the mother. These are the pieces of the puzzle that I was speaking of that need to be put together for the jury as a story is told to them, as you've been telling the whole time, the compelling story as to what occurred here. And, you know, two plus two has to equal four. And when it doesn't, something is amiss. 
And that something relates to a murderer. And that's what we have here. We do. And and the dispute was over a $400,000 wire transfer. That money was supposed to go to Helen to build a house, and she was going to live there with her boyfriend. Again, Megan had problems with that. She tried to take the money. She tried to access the account, make these fraudulent wire transfers, which police ultimately were able to track down. It's also interesting that... Um, so Pam would be the mom who was murdered here. Her sister, so the aunt of the two girls, of the two sisters, if you will. And there's another sister. She really was not involved in any of this. But of course, now she's been left with her family decimated. Um, so the mother's sister uh, said in an interview that the relationship between mother Pam and Megan, who is now the convicted killer, was always a problematic relationship. They often clashed and... And it was the mother who said that Megan hated her sister, Helen. So mom Pam was always aware of what was going on. You know, from Megan's perspective, mom always favored Helen. But from the mother's perspective, oh my gosh, she, my other daughter, hates her sister. Isn't interesting when you look at it that way. Yeah, it really is. Uh, because, you know, we, we have to talk about the issue of circumstantial evidence, right? And what do we know circumstantial evidence to be? We look outside and it's a sunny, beautiful day, right? We then go inside, we do a number of things for a couple of hours without looking out the window. But when we look out the window, Anna, what do we see? We don't see rain, but we see puddles everywhere. We see, you know, water on cars. We could conclude it's raining. And I think that it's so important, not only the direct evidence of the crime scene, not only direct evidence with respect to the wire transfers that attempted to be made the day before, the text messages that seem to be a bit unusual. You know, when you get to speaking to people and they give you an indication as to relationships, as to past experiences, as to how people related to each other, as to Megan being bent out of shape, as to Megan being antagonistic towards the mom, as to Megan not liking the fact that her mom might be favoring Helen, her other daughter, a little bit more, I think it leads to a powerful conclusion. So circumstantial evidence may not be direct, Someone not saying, I saw exactly what happened. I saw her raise the 22 caliber rifle. I saw the shooting. I heard the commotion. But what are the outside elements that are powerful and from an evidentiary perspective that really aid the jury in learning what happened? And I think what you just noted is very powerful in terms of, you know, auntie coming in and saying, hey, let me tell you about a little relationship. Let me tell you a little story about Megan and how she related to her mother. And that's just another issue and another mountain of evidence that just adds up, boom, to be so overwhelming and compelling. It, it seems like Megan was so determined to get her own house since Helen was getting one that prosecutors say she actually made a bid on a home, even though she apparently only had $30 to her name at the time. And she falsely used her mother's bank account to try and place that bid. So everything really started unraveling. And, you know, you see this, um, you know, with children and toys, it's like, no, 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 I, I, I need to have this and you can't have it. I don't really want it, but I just want to make sure you don't get it. It's so true. It's so true. And, you know, a while ago, back in you know, I spent my life doing prosecution and defense. I said, let me try to do a little bit different areas of law. Let me dabble and see. Reason I tell you that quick story is I started doing some matrimonial work, right? Which I will never do again. <laughs> I did it for a few years, you know, dabbled in it, said, I'm out of here. Why? I find that I would get settlements for one party that would be everything they wanted. I want the pension. I want the house. I want the visitation. But then they'd learn what the other party had and say, well, well why are they getting that? But don't be concerned. I got you what you needed. No, no, I know you did. But why are they getting that? Now, I'm not agreeing to this. We're going to trial. But why are you going to trial? You have everything you want. Well, I want that. And so, listen, I know the human element, the emotional element uh, sometimes can be very powerful. But at the end of the day, to your point, I mean, look, <laughs> you know, we need to all act reasonably as best as we can. Right. Perfection eludes us all. I get it. But resorting to crime and trying to get your way in an instance like this where you're cold busted, where you think your plan is going to be successful, where it's not, where there are holes in your plan, where things don't make sense, you got issues. And she certainly, that is, Megan had issues, and the jury was able to see right through it with respect to convicting her on both counts of murder. 
So the avenue that prosecutors took was to take this initially to a grand jury, and they indicted Megan, and she was arrested and went on trial. She was convicted by a Fairfax County jury of two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of use of a firearm. In the commission of murder, she was sentenced to life in prison by the jury. She will be formally sentenced on October 28th. Megan's never going to get her dream house and she's never going to get that mother's love that she insisted she wasn't getting. It's just not happening. It's over. Game over. <laughs> game, game over, uh, hook, line, and sinker. The fact of the matter is we've heard this a lot of times, all ah, right, crime doesn't pay. Don't do the crime unless you're ready and prepared to yeah. do the time. And mm-hmm. so many times defendants, criminals think they can get away with it, but you know, believe it or not, there are people who are smarter than them. Uh, and that was the case here where you had police prosecutors come together and just really put it on the defendant in terms of your story makes no sense whatsoever. The narrative that you're really trying to weave as a defendant, even as much as trying she did to blame the boyfriend. Remember, she said, oh, well, you know, something happened here because, uh, you know, the mom was concerned. That's Pamela that Helen's moving in this house with her boyfriend. And so there was this tumultuous relationship. So Helen was upset with the mom. Come on, let's talk about reality. And so, yeah, um, I I think that any reasonable jury can conclude what really happened. And it's not, Madame Defendant, Miss Megan, what you said happened, obviously. Our next case is from just outside Reno, Nevada. Now, of course, you never know when you're going to be the victim of a crime. You never know when something horrible is going to happen to you. And in this case, it happened really early in the morning as a young woman was headed to work. She was kidnapped and then murdered. 18-year-old Naomi Arion was last seen alive at 5 a.m. on Saturday, March 12th, in the parking lot of a Walmart in Fernley, Nevada. Now, she didn't work at the Walmart. She worked at the Panasonic factory, but there at the parking lot for Walmart, she was able to catch a shuttle bus to go into work. So that's where she was headed. She had a pretty strict routine. She usually followed it. I, what disturbs me about this case, and we're going to get into that, is what took so long for the authorities to take this seriously, Joey. And we're going to get into the timeline in just a second. And we see this all the time. When someone disappears, the family has a sinking feeling, or whether it's the boyfriend, the girlfriend, best friend, auntie, mom, whomever. And police are always like, well, she's an adult. Well, you know, right? And it's in those precious moments of the, well, right? That all the horrible things happen and time is wasted. Yeah, therein lies the rub, right? It's a problem because there's two perspectives. On the one hand, you have this family, Anna, and the family, and not just limiting it to this story, but just in general, taking the global view, where you have a family that says, look, I know the modus operandi of the person I'm talking to you about. I know their daily schedule. I know what they would do. I know what they wouldn't do. I know the time they're expected. I know what they told me they would do. And I'm explaining to you, Mr. or Mrs. Officer, that this is the case. So will you please Please assist me in carrying out some kind of, you know, search or filing a missing persons report or looking for them or assisting me in any way you can. Now, the police's perspective is, as you noted, Anna, they're an adult. They could have gone off stream. They could have done a number of other things. They could have been upset with someone. They could be just going for a walk. They could be blowing off steam. They could have had a bad day. There could be, there could be, there could be a hundred different ways. And so police generally have this blanket policy, right? 24 hours, right? 24 hours. And after that, we'll go looking. And that's problematic. I get it. And I don't want to, you know, unfairly tarnish or target the police. I get it. There's a limitation of resources. If you act too quickly, you would be diverting resources from someone who potentially can use them. But at the same time, you know, and I know that time is of the essence, 
And in the event that you don't jump on these missing person cases early, right, you lose critical time in order to solve them, in order to potentially save lives, in order to bring the people who did it to justice. And so it's this tension that we have to fix in society as a policy matter between the notion of when a family member should be where they're supposed to be and when the police will take it seriously enough to do something about it. And I think that's that tension is what is really the rub in this case. And that's what really has the family in a flummox and saying you could have done, you should have done more. Especially since it turns out that the family discovers a very key piece of evidence that the police did not. And when the family member has to go to the Walmart and say, can I see your surveillance because my sister's disappeared and it's urgent and Walmart helps them and the police haven't even gotten to that step yet, that to me is very troubling. So let's go through the timeline. She leaves her brother's house. She lives with her older brother at 5 a.m. At 5.03, she stops at a gas station. She goes into the convenience store. She gets some breakfast, and we see her clearly at the register. We know what she's wearing. She's wearing her uniform for work. It's very clear that it's Naomi. 5.09, she parks the car in the Walmart parking lot. Now, according to police, between 5.09 and 5.23, she's sitting in her car, she's active on social media, she's connecting with some friends overseas. So my guess is, that sounds pretty normal. That's You're waiting for the shuttle bus, right? Hey, who's awake at five in the morning? My friend's in Europe, right? All of this makes perfect sense to me. So now, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. I'm gonna tell you what the surveillance shows because it's so important to this case and the fact that it's the brother who found it and not the police, I think, to me, lends more credibility to their argument. Police didn't act fast enough and furiously enough. So surveillance shows a man walking up to her car at 524. He's wearing a gray hoodie. Hoodie is pulled up. He's got blue-gray pants on. You can't see his face. The man opens her car door, her driver's car door. She slides over and he drives away. At 525, that car is off the parking lot. So everything has happened very, very, very quickly. So what do you make of that before we get into how the how the brother found this video? Yeah, I make a lot of it. I mean, first of all, obviously, you have a motivated family who would be motivated enough and confident enough and knowing that something is amiss to go and get that video. And then you have the other factor, which I'm sure you were going to get into, and we are, with respect to where the car is found. And it's found, what is it, within a half a mile of the actual location in the parking lot that she's in? And if you're the officers, you would think you would have done enough thorough job to determine that the car is there. She obviously didn't make that bus trip to go to her job at Panasonic, so doesn't that disturb you? And it really just comes back to the issue of time, because on the surveillance tape, the person with the hoodie. Did she know this person? Were they planning to meet? What was going on? Did he forcibly tell her, move over, I have a gun. If you don't, there'll be a problem. So there's so much that you can analyze with respect to that, but it all goes back to the element and the tension and the reason, Anna, that you and I are going to be speaking about these cases for some time to come if we don't get a grapple on when it is that police need to move on these issues. If the family's telling you there's a concern and they know the MO of their you know, particular niece, their sister, their daughter, whoever it is, and they don't show up, you know, it's in the office or to work, wherever it is they need to go, you know, when are we going to do something about it? Now, we don't know specifically when the murder occurred, uh, unfortunately, but the reality is, is that if, you know, you act sooner, it would stand to reason that you would have a chance of preventing or determining or deterring anything from happening. So I just make of it that we as a policy matter relating to this case and to solve so many others have to get on this with the quickness so that we can ultimately have this sadness go away. People don't deserve to be found missing. People don't deserve to be abducted. And certainly won't we want the great law enforcement that we have in communities to do their job as rapidly as they possibly can. And as you said, the, the car was found, Naomi's car was found about a half a mile away and it was clearly visible from the highway. That is also problematic. It's not like it was concealed. Again, 
goes to simple police work. I mean, if you can see it from the highway, this this is frightening to me. It's frightening to me as a clue that was um, so big and glaring. So her brother, Naomi's brother, Casey Valley, said that Naomi didn't show up for work and then she didn't come home from work. And that's when he got really, really concerned. And he admits that it was the next day that he contacted the authorities. Again, trying to be the adult saying, okay, she's 18, she's an adult, I am worried about her, but, right, but. But the next day when he contacts the sheriff's department, he has to wait several hours before anyone even calls him back. And then it wasn't until the next day that they start filing the report. Precious time has you know, been lost here. He says it took two hours for the response. So by the time that they filed, the the authorities filed the missing persons report, it would have been two days after the abduction. And the timeline here is going to be really important. So the brother, as I said, was so frustrated. He went to Walmart. He said, please show me the security video. And some of the video that he describes has not been released. What has been released publicly is of the the suspect, but there are a lot of details that have not been released, but he saw it. So I think it's really important. The Daily Mail did an exclusive interview with Naomi's brother, and their mother was also sitting next to the brother during this interview. And I want to play a clip from it because it's really important because he's describing watching his little sister being abducted on this videotape. We saw the abduction happen. Uh, and it was just, it was surreal. It was a, it was a deep sinking feeling like uh, my blood had ran cold um, immediately. And I just, I walked out of that um, security office and I got on the phone with dispatch because on Sunday night I had reported her missing around 11:23 p.m. Um, and I wasn't necessarily taken very seriously and they didn't file a missing persons report um, but on Monday after I found that footage and I reported an, an abduction uh, there was a deputy that came out and viewed the footage with us and he still wasn't uh, very, he still wasn't, uh, convinced and everything, even though I had told him everything he knew, but, um, you know, police officers, they see a lot of things and sometimes, um, they can be a little jaded. You know, part of me feels Joey that the brother and the mother shouldn't have been the first ones to see that video, that surveillance video. Yeah, I have to tell you, I think, you know, you're 100 percent right. Um, you know, this relates really, Anna, to officers having gotten the report, to acting upon the report, to going to the location where the family said she would be, to looking themselves at the video, to taking steps to identify the person who may have been in the video, to trying to track the whereabouts of where, you know, she may have been at that particular time, where she could have been, where was the car, et cetera. You made a very important point, Anna, as usual, and that related to where the car was and where it was visible from. And when you talk about a car that's not otherwise concealed or in a location that would really be a ruse to the police or to throw off the police, it really questions, you know, what, what exactly did they do? And that's why I think the family has a very legitimate concern about the aggressiveness of the police action, the the real completeness and thoroughness of the complete the police action and whether or not they acted properly and appropriately in these circumstances. And they have a point. And I get and understand that police are very highly stressed. There's limited resources. They're doing the best they can on limited budgets, et cetera. But I think unless we act aggressively and quickly and swiftly to identify what's happening, and that starts on ground zero with going to the location, pulling that surveillance so that the family doesn't have to do that, we're just going to be in this situation all over again. We have to, as a society, do better. 
And I'm, I'm curious, you know, a lot of times, especially a big company like Walmart, I'm surprised that they turned over the surveillance video and let the family see it. I'm glad that they did, frankly. I'm really glad that they were a good neighbor and a good community member by helping with a, a family in distress. But a lot of times these places will say to family members, I'm sorry, you know what, unless you're the police, I'm not going to show it to you. So I'm really, I'm glad to have seen that. It's a great point. You know, the, the bottom line here is that, you know, we all know that we're very well surveillance nowadays in so many locations, whether it's corporations, whether it's malls, whether it's street corners, no matter where it is, there are oftentimes a surveillance which would give an indication of where people are, what they're doing, how they're acting. And, you know, to your point, I think it's important for corporations to be good neighbors. You can do things, the legal process and speak to our legal department and that takes additional time and so good for them that they were able to be so supportive so cooperative and just you know really really be a, a good partner in trying to bring this to a healthy and really happy ending but unfortunately that just was not the case but i think more corporations can learn from that example help someone did it take you really much of anything to show the surveillance no but it really moved the ball forward unfortunately you know, the result is what it is, but it's certainly not as a result of what Walmart did. Absolutely. So on March 15th, the Lyon County Sheriff's Office issues a be on the lookout for Naomi. Well, this has been days now since Naomi disappeared. And they also described her at this point as a possible kidnapping victim. Now, later that afternoon, after they do the call for help, to the community, her car is discovered in an industrial area, as we said, and in her car, they said, without getting into details, there was evidence that a crime had occurred. So at this point, I'm hoping police are now taking this really seriously because it's not looking good. And evidence of a crime generally means struggle, blood, you know, bad things, very bad things, very bad things. So on March 24th, investigators announced that they have connected Naomi's car to a suspect car, and apparently, you know, the guy who was on foot didn't walk there the whole way, so he would have been in a car himself, and they described a dark-colored Chevy four-door pickup that they were looking for, so they asked the public to help on that search. The following day, a man driving that type of a car is arrested on suspicion of kidnapping. His truck is impounded for evidence, and he's identified as 41-year-old Troy Driver, who has an extensive criminal history. Now, this is the part that, you know, really turns my stomach. Besides the fact, you know, of what he's accused of doing. On the day that Troy Driver's to appear in court on kidnapping charges, Naomi's still missing. They haven't found Naomi. And it is now 17 days after Naomi has disappeared on March 30th. So he is supposed to appear in court on the kidnapping charges. That day, her body is found, or who, they think it's her body, in a remote area of Churchill County. That's about 70 miles south of where she was last seen. So the family, Naomi's family, is in court for the kidnapping case, right? His appearance. The authorities go to Naomi's family and they tell them before the hearing starts, we found a body. We're not sure it's her, but you need to know we found a body. Can you imagine they're sitting there trying to digest this while the man associated with this, suspected, is standing there in the court. Later that day, the authorities go to Naomi's family and they tell them it was for sure Naomi and she is dead. 17 days later. That's, that's powerful, uh, beyond unfortunate, uh, tragic, so sad, demoralizing, heartbreaking. And so, no, Anna, to your question, I can't even imagine what the family's feeling. Uh, I will say that it's very important, even in these cases, and you describe the background of the defendant, which is not so good, right? In oh, we're going to get into that, yeah. <laughs> all the other crimes and everything else that he committed, but I think that when you have the person, right, because defense attorney is always going to make motions in any trial 
to suppress evidence like what, like the background of the defendant, like bringing up any other things that they've done. And sometimes defense attorneys can be very successful in doing that. And so police need to focus, obviously, on things that point him not only relating to his past, but what specifically is the conduct connecting him to this case. And earlier you described, you know, uh, in, in his artfully uh, the way that you could without getting into detail, the evidence of the crime in the car. Well, that's very helpful and fruitful because there would be DNA and other evidence that would match the person who committed this crime. And so when you look and if there's a DNA match, you have to ask yourself, well, what was his blood have been doing in the car? What yep. would any hair samples or any follicles or anything else connecting him would be in the car? And how is it that the surveillance matched the truck ultimately that they were looking for with the car? So I think that direct evidence becomes powerful. And that's what police focus on so that in the event that his bad record is excluded, the jury, even absent considering that, could consider really the facts that pinpoint him with her and really match what he could have done uh, as it related to this crime. So Troy Driver has now been charged with murder along with robbery, burglary, and destruction of evidence. He is an ex-convict with an extensive rap sheet that takes him back to California. He was convicted on previous crimes, including second-degree robbery and burglary, but... He was also convicted as an accessory to a murder in 1997, accused of being an accessory to killing a 19-year-old man who was described at the time as a drug dealer. This man, connected to um, Naomi's case, Troy Driver, allegedly stuffed the victim's body in the trunk of a car and left the vehicle in a remote area. Driver was 17 at the time of this. He was then sentenced to 15 years in state prison, but released after 12. He moved from California to Nevada, where he allegedly worked in construction. Yeah, Anna, you know, the fact is, is that it's very compelling in terms of what his background was and what he was doing and would he be the type of person because of his past criminal history that would have engaged in a uh, really a horrific offense like this. And as I noted before, I think that builds and tells a lot of the story. The reason and, you know, people may be listening, saying, hey, I heard you say that they're going to exclude or the judge could exclude any of that evidence about his background, his crimes, the history. I heard Anna just say that he was involved in this uh, you know, homicide. But nonetheless, he was supposed to do 15 years. He served 12 years. What's going on with our system? And that's a fair question. But just to explain what happens is. Judges are very concerned with regard to protecting the rights of the defendant. And I know people are screaming, what about the rights of the victim? Is a person dead here? But what happens is because of that judicial concern, a lot of times they won't allow the jury to hear information because they feel that as judges, if the jury hears about a checkered past, they'll say once a criminal, always a criminal, nothing to see here, you're guilty. And so it goes again, what I was saying is that you really have to focus on and not rely upon the past as horrible as it is and focus on all the evidence, which would seem to indicate that he's your guy. And today in this day and age, we have such powerful forensic analysis and scientists and other things that can really pinpoint what occurred and really other things like, did you have a phone and does your phone match the location that you could have been in? And is there other surveillance that showed you there? And are you the person? who was in the hoodie at the time. So you really have to rely upon that if you're a prosecutor and not so much rely upon the awful record. But that awful record would go to show inquiring minds, you, me, the public, that who else would have done it? He did. So far, police have not said whether they have recovered her purse or her cell phone that she would have had at the time. And obviously, you would have seen this in the surveillance video when she was buying stuff at the convenience store that morning. I mean, there's a lot of ways of corroborating what she would have had. So apparently, that has not been recovered, or at least authorities have not said. The criminal complaint that has been filed by the Lyon County DA accuses him of kidnapping Naomi for the purpose of committing sexual assault and for the purpose of killing her. So I think there's a lot more forensic information that we will be getting as this moves along. I, I do want to say one thing about the family and the community. So when Naomi disappeared, lots of people stepped up to help the family. 
searches everywhere, people volunteering, holding candlelight vigils the entire time. And those things can really help a family when they're struggling, especially knowing that someone is out there. So I just wanted to share that this Sunday, the family and the community are planning a celebration of life at a local park. And they have asked everyone um, who will attend to please wear solid colors of the rainbow because that was Naomi's favorite. And I just, uh, you know, there's something about this community where I think they've all been very, very supportive and tried to help here. And um, it's nice to see. I, I know it's the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest of, you know, a silver lining. And there really isn't one here because Naomi has been murdered. But how lovely of the community. I agree with that. and I really do. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that for as vicious and vile and evil as some people can be and this one being accused of, I think is as humane and just and sweet and loving and concerned that other people can be. And so I think the community does deserve credit for uplifting this family in so many ways, for surrounding this family in hugs and in love at this critical time. And in really having a sense of understanding and awareness of what they're going through and just being there for them in general. And so, yes, to your point, it's not going to prevent what occurred. But it, boy, is it nice to know that there are people out there uh, who really give a darn about other people. And I think to your point, that community is really showing. Yeah, absolutely. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories that you all are talking about on social media. Our producer, Will Updike, is here now with the very latest on, okay, what's everybody talking about, Will? (laughs) Hey, Joey. Hey, Anna. Great to see you both. Uh, So today we got a kind of a weird one for you. So a Texas woman was charged with the offense of the sale or purchase of a child after attempting to buy a woman's baby in a Walmart checkout line. Now, The mother of the child in question called police, advising them that a white woman with blonde hair approached her in the Crockett Walmart wanting to purchase her son. Now, a note on this blonde hair. The woman, for for the audio listeners, looks like a woman who would possibly try to purchase a baby at a Walmart in her mugshot. She's got like a leopard print dress on. She's got blonde hair, a lot of roots. uh, So not a natural blonde there. But this incident. What exactly uh, are you saying there, Will? Some of us own leopard. I don't understand. Owning leopard (laughs) is fine. I don't know that I'd get my mugshot taken with it on oh you know will sometimes you don't have a choice <laughs> the police generally determine when you have to take your mugshot. they don't say to you would you like to prepare what would you like to wear <laughs> i mean i try to get i try to get gussied up even for the dmv so i would definitely do my best for a mugshot. uh but the so the mother of the child in question uh she was approached at the self-checkout line. Both of these women were reportedly waiting to scan their items. And the mother claimed that the suspect commented specifically on the baby's blonde hair and the blue eyes before asking how much she could purchase the child for. So the mother thought it was a joke, obviously. You know, she kind of laughed it off. But the suspect insisted, saying that she had $250,000 in her car to offer for the baby. And she would be willing to pay that much for this child. Uh, the woman, you know, starts to get a little freaked out. This continues into the parking lot where the suspect says if $250,000 was enough, she had $500,000 she would be willing to offer the woman. Now, footage from the Walmart parking lot. Again, more footage from the Walmart parking lot confirms uh, the mother's claim. And she was obviously freaked out. She ended up calling the authorities. Uh, but let's see what people had to say about this case. Uh, Robert S. commented, wow, you really can buy anything at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not sure if you're getting a discount, though, on, on $250,000 there. Uh, Isaac M. said she's not blonde, which fair enough. Uh, yeah, I, I think with the I think not a, a natural blonde for sure. Uh, DJ said, I'd at least get the money, then tell the police it was only 100K, which <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> interesting strategy. I think you're probably in your own legal hot water, though, if you've given up your child for even 100K. Uh, Mona C. said 500K. I got a niece if she wants it. Uh, (laughs) Some other people were also willing to part with their kids for a sum of money. Jen M said, I have an 18 and 22 year old baby she can buy. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, the the perfect time is what? 14, 16, 17. (laughs) The the discount increases. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's going to do it for today's comments. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you, Will. I didn't expect... um, 
<laughs> and this this whole podcast is themed around what happens in Walmart. <laughs> a lot of activity. <laughs> Apparently, don't let it happen in the parking lot. You know what? Because they're watching and they're turning it over, right? You're not going to get away with it at Walmart. That's, that is the lesson of today's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you both. All right. Thanks, Will. See you next week. <laughs> Sometimes it's just it's just too much, isn't it, Joey? <laughs> You know, as he was speaking, as Will was speaking about things to buy and everything else, and then when you came back, I mean, I, I'd make a couple of offers for all of those trophies and paintings and wonderful oh. things that you have behind you, uh, but for a person, uh, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're so funny, Joey. Well, that is our program for today. Thanks for joining us. We know you're very, very active everywhere. I follow you on Instagram, but where can people follow you or find you if they need an attorney, as we always say? That's sweet, Anna. So we're right at 510 Plaza in New York City. Just uh, Google me, Joey Jackson, and all types of things will pop up. I have a wonderful team. We're out there working hard every day. And, uh, you know, life is good. I think, Anna, we have to put things in perspective. You have the ability to do what you love. You're such a great storyteller. You have such a great show. You educate so many people, you know, and uh, I have the ability to be here speaking with you and from the legal front to try to help as many people as we can. So we're just going to continue to do that. Um, so send your tweets, send your hellos, send your emails. Obviously, I'd be grateful to hear from everyone. Thanks for having me on. It was a great time with you, as it always is. Uh, continue to do the great work you do. Joey, you just said something about educate people. I have got to tell you about what someone posted on our Instagram. I have to pull it up. I have to pull it up because when I read this comment, I said to myself, Oh, this is just the sweetest thing I've ever read, okay? I'm going to read it to you. I just thought about it. This is from Lil Savage, and she posted on Instagram, I love this podcast. I've been listening to it all throughout my freshman year, and it's been very helpful in helping me figure out I want to be a forensic detective. Wait. This is great, Joey. I've been listening to it mostly on Pandora, but it's a great study tool. Do you believe this, Joey? A great study tool. And I just pop my headphones on and a podcast and I just get to writing. Thank you for making this. I wish I had found it sooner. I love we're helping someone with their homework. I would have never thought that anything we talk about could help anyone with their homework. You know, I think what you do is very powerful. And I, I believe you're a great storyteller. And through stories, that's how we educate people because we grab them and that's what people can relate to. And very few do it as well as you. It's a gift and continue to do it. Please. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And and thank you, all of you. You know, I say this, I really do listen to you. You, uh, you reach out to me through my website, through social media. I read your posts on YouTube because I really want to hear your thoughts. And so many times, Joey, someone will mention something. Well, I think this happened and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that or I didn't even think to ask that. So I love how interactive everyone is um, in, in this. And I love the community, the crime family that we have. So you can find me at Anna Genie. Use Anna with one N. Um, as we always say here, you know, you can find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. We also have a newsletter that you can subscribe to at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm Anna Garcia, your host. And as we say, don't do crime. <laughs>